I have to say it's felt like a, a blessing to have uh, to be here and have practice together um, these last few days. Uh, that feeling uh, never leaves uh, me, however challenging uh, things can be in the path of practice and through the journey of a retreat, that there is a sense of of the privilege really and the blessing of being able to take the time that we've taken to contemplate the Dharma and to have the Dharma as a support in one's life because it is profoundly transformative once we invite the Dharma or it, it invites us into itself and uh, it becomes part of our life then it uh, even when we think we're not practicing it's still unfolding uh, and and having an impact and uh, awakening us so really this this journey that we've been on these last few days is a sort of minuscule window through which we can um, know and experience the the way of awakening the journey of awakening and coming into retreat and in a more deliberate environment like this, um, there's a quickening of that process. We get to get the feeling of both the potential of it and also the real challenges in it. You know, they both are there together. We can't have one without the other. And I think we all have probably internalized or at least it's very common to internalize, and I can see that within myself, is this sense that the, 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 the way of meditation and the path of practice uh, should be easier than it actually is. We have this sort of ideal that we project onto the process and onto ourselves, um, that we should be experiencing more peace and, and upliftment, and people should be nicer, and it should all go a bit more smoothly and we shouldn't have any eruptions and difficulties um, in the process. I don't know why we have that notion, but it's pretty, pretty um, powerful. And then if things don't go that way, then something's wrong. And it's, we're, we're no longer nice spiritual Buddhist people. We've sort of veered from the path and we've gone into sort of muddy waters. But actually, as I learned quite quickly when I first ordained and had... So, you know, some sort of notions that ordination and living the life of a monastic would uh, be a, it would abdicate me from all all challenges that I would sort of somehow sit on a cloud and float off into the into the a pink cloud and just float off nicely um, above it all, um, and actually was you know conversely plunged into a sort of a, a war zone, really, of a spiritual boot camp with, you know, when I realized I couldn't stand my fellow nuns and I couldn't stand the schedule and, uh, you know, and it was just all very demanding and endless work and endless um, chanting and turning up for meditation and my mind was a mess and, you know, and it, and it wouldn't be controlled and, you know, and, and it, it, it took quite a while to realize that that actually it wasn't that, um, that I was being disturbed and that was disturbing my, my peace and my ideals, but actually disturbance was the path. That, that life disturbs us 
And that a lot of our practice, we're trying to ward off that sense of being disturbed and trying to carve out, you know, a niche. And that's important. You know, we call this a retreat so we can have a sense of a niche and some sense of grounding in something peaceful and presence and, you know, finding our ground again. But we, we can't really have a practice that's just dependent on that. It has to be able to integrate and be taken out into the, into the marketplace. And these days, as we know, that marketplace, that world that we're in, um, that seems to be out there, but actually was, is deeply within all of us and we're deeply within it, is extremely intense and challenging uh, for us on a, on a planetary level. We're really sort of in a, um, you know, something of a planetary crisis that's impinging on all of us in all sorts of ways um, and accelerating. So that's also with us and has been named and mentioned and come into the retreat. And we're not here to try and pretend that it should be otherwise or just, you know, um, float above it. We've been here to try and gather and give ourselves permission to come off the front lines and just resource ourselves and to align ourselves to these fundamental and deepening uh, practices that, and truths that enable us to realize, you know, Kitty Sara was leading us into, from the grounds that, the, the process that we've been building on, leading us into a recognition of that which is immovable and undying and is not wobbling um, all over the place because mostly we feel ourselves as sort of wobbling here and there. But the, the background, you know, the context, the fundamental nature of the heart itself, which is knowing, present, aware and enduring even in the face of that which is challenging and difficult and in, impactful. So the, using this uh, path, you know, this, talking about the path um, of awakening um, and using the teachings of, of the Buddha as a reference point. But of course, these teachings and the path um, aren't exactly, the, the map that we're using isn't necessarily the, exactly the territory that we're in. There's always a translation between the, the old texts and how it's um, been handed down and the terms and how we understand them and the actuality of what we're experiencing and how we apply that. Um, and, and in many ways, this, this path is, you know, it's... It's a, it's a big job because there's so many teachings and so many aspects of the Dharma to, to contemplate and be with. You know, the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment and the four noble truths and the 12 links of dependent inter origination. And that's just a tiny bit, the 37 Bodhiapakya Dharmas. And, you know, it's, it's, a big, it's a big project to be enlightened, actually. Yeah, so it's you know it can get very overwhelming, and there's so much to try and scope in, and then there's all the psycho-spiritual things, and then there's the science of mindfulness, and you know so it's it's a it's a large undertaking, and in all of that we can lose something very essential, 
and very simple, which is the, which is the heart itself, this, this ground of being, which in a way is, is utter simplicity. It's not in a strategy, it's not in a process of getting somewhere, it's not something we attain. As um, Huang Po, the Zen master said, we cannot become what we've always been. Uh, we can only become intuitively aware of our original state. So there is this sort of feeling often that we're trying to become something more. um, And that, you know, as we know, we never quite arrive there when we're under the influence of that momentum. So to be intuitively aware of our original state, this is really the, what was being pointed to um, in the teachings that Kidisaro was um, inducting us into and through using you know, the, um, the teachings from the Buddha. And then we move to the Heart Sutra, um, which basically all of the, the constructs that we've been contemplating, it then deconstructs all of that. And then everyone got confused. It's like, what, what is that teaching about? You know, what is that? It's sort of, there's no, you know, we've been doing this path and path activity, and suddenly there's a teaching that says there is no path, there's no way, there's no attainment, there's no suffering, there's no birth, there's no death, there's no... Um, 12 links of dependent origination, there's no senses, there's no, not even any eyes, ears, nose, tongue, t- you know, taste, or, and so on. And so, you know, it can, it can be for the cognitive mind, it can suddenly, you know, be very confusing, that doesn't make sense. So, so this is a, a teaching that's... Um, that's a profound teaching actually, and, and it's um, a teaching to live with. It's not a teaching that we apprehend necessarily through, through the cognitive, and that's the very point of it. It's a, it's a teaching that uh, reveals the limitations of trying to strategize and construct um, uh, our pathway of enlightenment and to get there somewhere you know, in the future, somewhere that's time-bound. It's sort of a teaching that challenges the, probably the orthodoxy of the structures of the teachings. And perhaps ultimately, the idea that um, the conceptual framework is the currency of awakening, that the knowledge that we gain, however wonderful and extensive it can be, and that if we overly rely on that, if we overly rely on the map, although it can point the way, and it's very important that we have maps to define the territory, it's not the actual realization. So it's a reminder not to dismiss or undermine the path and the maps and the, and the frames that we're working within, but to actually recognize that the intuit, becoming intuitively aware of what's already been here all along is, a, is something of a leap beyond the thinking mind, beyond the I got there and then I didn't get there, beyond the sense that I've got something to attain and I'm not there already.
you look at the the um, conceptual mind. This we've uh, talked a little bit or named this in the in the um, teachings called Mano Vijnana. It's the the mind that goes out, the part of the mind, an aspect of mind that's connected with thinking and the cognitive and languaging. And it goes out and it discerns and it discriminates and it designates and has the sense of difference. Basically generates a sense of the object and names an object to ourselves, that which is outside of ourselves. And that's a very necessary and important function of the mind. And it's a function that's highly developed and something we rely on all the time to describe to ourselves the nature of who we are, what the world is and what our experience is. We filter that through that mano vijnana, that consciousness of the mind that's, that's, um, that's separated things out and has language and has names. And when we have that and has a sense of time and placement, when we have that, we have a sense of where we are in relationship to everything else. But of course, that's also very complex because everything else and the sense of me, the sense of self is, is constantly shifting and changing. And it's not a very st- a stable ground to, to place ourselves within. And then when, we, when that's, uh, that mind is, is highly developed and we're relying on, reliant on it almost completely, it, it can get to the point in that consciousness, that mano-vignano consciousness, where there's a, there's a sense of the self being very divorced from the objects of its experience, from the world around, from each other, from the earth, from nature. And in many ways, our, our modern life, our, our modern world, um, over millennia, really, and over the centuries, with the heightening of the, the rational as, as primary, and the heightening of, of, um, of a worldview that, that has pulled us out of the sense of being part of the web of life and deeply in relationship to life, and even our religious language can feed into that, that the spiritual is somehow divorced from the embodied, from the earth, from our relation, from the from a sort of participatory experience, relationship, a direct experience, and a participatory way of being in relationship through intuitive awareness, through the meditative processes or information and knowing that comes to us through those portals or through dreams and visions and a sort of more instinctual sense of being in, in the world within, within a web of, of belonging. Um, when we're pulled out of that, as we all have been through this very heightened supremacy of the mano-vijnana, the languaging, the conceptual, the rational, and it's not to diminish that or to judge that, there's a great sort of loneliness in it, actually. There's a great sense of being divorced from a, a deeper belonging, a deeper arriving, a deeper sense of the fundamental sacredness of our own being and everything else.
it becomes um, desacralized. In the world, the earth, even ourselves, our bodies, because it's all seen through this objectifying consciousness. And we've objectified the world to such an extent now that, we, that we've lost a lot of sensitivity. And so that we can do what we're doing to our bodies, to the planet, to each other, um, that, that has led us to the place that we're at, where we're in this crisis, um, which is a, really a function of uh, um, a mind that has divorced itself from a deeper relationship with everything else. A loss of sensitivity, a loss of empathy. And so when we come to the Heart Sutra and we find this text that uh, has this line, emptiness is form, form is emptiness, or even this word emptiness, you know, it can, it can, the word emptiness can be a bit problematic because it can almost reinforce the idea that we should not kind of do a journey of reclamation of what's been lost, this sacred ground of being, but we should actually empty everything, that it's somehow cold and distancing, that it doesn't mean anything, that it's not important. But actually, um, the great teacher, Master Xinhua, who... Um, been very complimentary as we've talked about in relationship to the teachings we receive from Ajahn Chah. Um, he said, actually, true emptiness isn't empty because of wonderful existence. And wonderful existence doesn't exist because of true emptiness. You can't really say one thing or the other. You can't have emptiness without wonderful existence, I'm afraid. And you can't have wonderful existence without its complete and utter lack of insubstantiality. Or, or what um, in the Vajra Sutra where it says, you know, all conditioned dharmas, you know, things are real, conditioned dharmas, all that is, all that exists, all that comes to be, is actually our like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops, like a lightning flash, contemplate them thus. So there's wonderful existence, but it is, it exists, but it has this quality like dreams, illusions, bubbles, lightning flash, dewdrops, there, it's there, dewdrop is there, but it's conditioned by the morning, moisture, and then when the sun rises, they evaporate. So the, the wonderful existence is conditioned, comes to be because of conditions, because of so many factors come into play and then this condition arises and it is as it is. It exists for a while and then it drops back into the ground of the unmanifested. And that ground is always there that we just don't notice it because we're so compelled and stuck on the, the conditions. They're so fascinating to us, but then we've been looking and turning the mind, just turning that attention. As Kitty Sarah was talking about the advice from Sari, uh, Sariputra to An Anuruddha, turn the mind to the deathless, turn the mind back to that which is unconditioned. 
notice that there is the background, notice that which is, or when we're contemplating the, through the Kuan Yin Dharma, is noticing that which is listening. When there's an absence of sound, does the listening also go? That was one of Kuan Yin's questions, you know, or, or contemplations. The listening, it says, so there's another way of talking about the ground of awareness, that which is listening. So Avalokiteshvara is teaching the Heart Sutra, Kuan Yin, and is contemplating the conditions of our experience, this world, not from a place of objectifying it and knowing it as, well, yes, it's empty, but it's not like empty just to kind of like evaporate it because we don't want to bother with it <laughs> because it's too difficult. It's quite the opposite. Avalokiteshvara is coursing the depths of the mystery. This beautiful thing in the Heart Sutra, some translations is, Avalokiteshvara is coursing the depths of the mystery, contemplating the depths of the mystery. I mean, this is really our human activity. You know, this is, we're coursing the depths of what is a mystery. But it's not a mystery in the way of how Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara is in relationship to what is being contemplated. You know, when that objectifying mind starts to collapse, the sense of me looking at you, when that starts to dissolve, in the knowing heart, in the deep knowing of awareness, as uh, is said by another um, uh, Dogen, that enlightenment is the intimacy of all things. There is no thing out there. Uh, there is no here, there is no there, there is no thing out there. So that dissolving of the subject me and the object you and that generation of that through the mano vinyana arriving back into the heart, there is a, a, a deep resonance with what is known. So Avalokiteshvara is not looking in a cold or cool way, but actually in a very intimate way in a compassionate way. It is compassion to know at that level. For example, you might be walking um, somewhere, walking somewhere and then you see, you see something you don't like, you see a, a you know, maybe you see a, a creepy crawly and you go, ooh, it's a creepy crawly crossing your path. If you're not very mindful, you might just um, squash it. That's the end of that. That's not in your, in your problem anymore. Because there's a, you know, that's an object to the mind, something that you've perceived as not pleasant. But really, what's happening? That creepy crawly is just doing its own creepy crawly thing on the path, and the mind has gone out, and it's kind of created a perception of what is unpleasant, what's perceived as unpleasant, and then it reacts to that with fear or lack of empathy. And then 
it's caught in its own reaction. So the mind isn't really seeing the creepy crawly, the mind's just reacting to its own projection. And then we squash it. And that's what happens a lot. We're just caught, we're actually just caught in our own projection. We're not really seeing what's there. We're seeing what we think we're seeing through this manovinyana that's very layered with all sorts of perceptions, needs, wants, prejudices, likes, dislikes, um, assumptions, memories of what's gone before. So it's very hard to see freshly. But this heart, this simplicity of just being in the knowing, this leap into what's actually utterly simply present in relationship to that right now, that creepy crawly, there is a receptivity, just receiving as it is, feeling with, attunement, maybe even relationship, a very deep level that that there isn't a sense of me and it. It's a, it's a dynamic of an arising participatory experience coursing the depths of the mystery. So it's just a way really of talking, another way of just talking about this heart that we think is not so real and yet it's the ground of all reality. And, and 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 the simplicity of returning home to abiding that you know it's, it's just here being listening that listening back into how is it and recognizing that this way it's uh, this heart depth awareness is sometimes called prajna panya wisdom prajna paramita it's like this uh, image behind us is of prajna paramita. Prajna is a word, it's a panya in Pali, and prajna in Sanskrit means wisdom. Wisdom, prajna pra means, um, if you break that word down, it means before, prefix, and jnana means knowing. It's the idea that before you know something, before you have the language for it. It's a deep sense of knowing that's an unknowing. It's a stripping away of your assumptions. So it's a sort of a naked way of being vulnerable. It feels vulnerable, but actually the nature of the heart is diamond-like. It has strength, presence. Invulnerable. So this is the invitation of a text like the Heart Sutra to come into the naked awareness, being present, the stripping away. This is why the bowing, the reorientating again and again freshly into not the complexity and the attainments and the strategizing, all of which has its place and, and you know, helps us manifest something like this, Incredible Spirit Rock. But however beautiful and creative we are as human beings, manifesting what we've done, if we don't actually reclaim this heart, we'll never be satiated. We'll continue to completely devour our planet 
and everything on it, you know, because we can never get to the end of that loneliness and that craving and that dislocation until we find our heart again and we, we find that together. Because it is about together now, I think. I think at one point the practice was often about me doing it on my own and, and others with it just there as a sideshow. Uh, and that's one of the things I, I, I also wanted to mention tonight about this um, collective practice and collective time we're in because it's important um, to relate it to the observance that this retreat is framed around, which is the thanksgiving um, reflection and uh, contemplation. This time uh, last year, I was at Standing Rock and um, it freezing cold. It's one of my primary memories of the experience. I've never been to North Dakota before. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it was, uh, pro- it's, you know, what's very important is um, for, for, for us, I think, as we approach this observance tomorrow, is to recognize for, for us in our contemporary culture, um, for our settler culture, that it's a, a celebration, it's a time of coming together, it's a time of warmth, it's a time of connection, you know, and that can be complicated too because there's a lot of family dynamics and I noticed, you know, that we come on retreat sometimes and we're not with our families and it might be some longing and missing but it might be a relief too. You know, there is that. But also for the First Nations peoples whose lands we're actually upon, this Turtle Island as it's called, it's uh, not seen in that light actually. It's, uh, it was a time of, you know, now sorrow and um, de- and devastation. So to to acknowledge that, and it, it is really this this way of awakening is to see more deeply beyond our own culture, our own perspective, our own um, narrow band of history. Really, to look at these causes and conditions and how deep and complex they are. So it's a training to see beneath um, and beyond our conditioning and our histories and what has given birth to the situation we find ourselves in now and what has gone before. So I think it's important as we go into tomorrow and we do want to do some ceremony and, and to honor the day and to contemplate this really important theme of gratitude to honor also the ancestors of this land. Here I think it was the Miwok, uh, peoples that were in this coastal uh, area of uh, Marin and Sonoma. Um, and to that they're still here on some level. Still here, not many left actually. Um, they've been very decimated peoples. But peoples that are still here also in, in, uh, in the spirit, the bones in the land, um, and that we honor that, so we recognize that. Uh, Standing Rock was an extraordinary uh, coming together of First Nation peoples in a way that had never happened before, actually, 
in their in their history and allies and veterans i think on the actual thanksgiving day about 2000 veterans came and they came and made an offering to chief arval looking horse and the elders of the tribes um led by um one of the sons of the leading generals of uh, contemporary generals Wesley Clark came and together they went and went down on their knees and offered an a profound and very heartfelt apology and request for forgiveness for harm done um to to the first nations peoples of these lands and you know it's a very um powerful gesture and tomorrow in our ceremony that's part of what we are contemplating not to generate a sense of shame or guilt but just to acknowledge and to feel um and recognize um our human shared history and how complex that is you know master was talked about wonderful existence and it is wonderful but it's also there's a lot of a shadow in the wonderfulness as well which is also part of our inheritance and you know something that um that we we live with and and illuminate not to ignore what's in the shadow but to illuminate um this today the, the conversation came up and uh, touched into that in the questions and answers what is the place you know i i personally tend to veer away from the word evil um because it tends to come become very personified um and there's this way that then that objectifies it's in that person without recognizing that there's a shared you know the buddha actually said there's no there's no beginning and there's no end to greed hatred and delusion ignorance and we're all party to it you know you won't get an end of that you'll never you know if we think that we're going to approach the world and somehow get rid of evil then you know that's often what religion tries to do isn't it <laughs> and then in the very process it perpetuates it you know by sort of crushing this thing uh we call evil but actually there's always a play of shadow and light that's an archetypal dynamic and battle that's been that's gone on for millennia and goes on through human consciousness and gets played out in very uh, dynamic dramatic destructive and powerful ways you know so the waves of history with and even on the, even in the archetypal journey of the buddha's own awakening he wouldn't have awakened without mara you know that was the force mara's the force as sort of i suppose the personification in buddhism of the hasatan or the the evil or the shadow it was pushing him and you know there was a even on the night of the buddha's enlightenment he's sitting under the bodhi tree and arrayed against him was all the forces of delusion and longing and seduction and doubt and uh you know aggression and fear fearful things and the buddha sat there he didn't get out his machine gun 
and try and just sort of like blast Mara off the planet, he just said, I know you, I know you. And you will not, I will not, I'm not, he didn't say this, but I'm just saying it. I will not be fooled by you. (laughs) I won't be seduced by you. That I know this knowing, this very profound knowing, you know, that, uh, and, then, and even after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara kept following the Buddha around. You're not enlightened, you know. I know you, that voice. You know, you're not really real, you know. You're not really worthy, you know. You know that voice? So we are in a time where these, these forces are very intense. And, you know, to try and think that we're going to take on that which we consider um, and is uh, profoundly destructive, profoundly distorting, poisonous, toxic, um, terrifyingly so, to think that we might do that from a place of um, aggression or to try and approach it through um, through the power of of, uh, of 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 wanting to destroy that from the place within ourselves that's agitated and activated in that separative consciousness, we can do that. But I'm not sure it's the most profoundly effective um, way of operating. And so it's not that what we're doing here is unrelated to an application in our daily life. What we're doing here is exploring uh, the, and recognizing and embodying a, a profound depth of a shift of consciousness that really is underlying, underlying the crisis of, separa- of our separative world where we're objectified everything, we're trying to control everything, we, we're extracting everything. Underlying that is a conscious, a separative consciousness. So to so really, at the heart of the crisis is the need to shift from that consciousness into a unitive consciousness where we understand there is no other ultimately. And for me, that's why the, 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 the learning at Standing Rock, even though I wasn't there for very long and it was an extraordinary privilege to be there, I did feel extraordinarily... Um, I was very aware that I was stepping into um, a very a decolonized space, which is a very rare thing to experience, actually, um, and was a guest in that, in, um, in, a, in, a, in the territory of, a, of the First Nation peoples, and they were holding that space, and it's very rare to step into a space when, when our dominant culture is not in control. Um, so, I, you know, there, there was a very deep learning in that um, so, to to so, I wanted to just um, mention the guidelines that I was given, and um, or I that we were all given when we came into that space. We were sort of um, taken to a sort of training, you know, like you're here and you can kind of align with the with um, with with the script here and what's happening here. You know, and one of the very, very primary um, alignments was that this is um, this is a resistance. This is a, a resistance against. Um, it was the, the the attempt 
to save um, the purity of the water in the Missouri River by which the next to where the, the encampment was, which was threatened by the pipeline going under it. It was a pipeline, by the way, that was rejected by the peoples of Bismarck, with primarily white community, and shunted down to the reservation community. You know, so, um, but, the, the, but the resistance to that was an act of communal prayer and ceremony, a non-violent communal prayer and ceremony. And that was, that was the, and there was a lot of faith to that power of that, and a lot of talking about how that was the transmission from the ancestors that were on that land, and they knew this time would come. And they left within the land and within the memory of the people the injunction to come together at that time and enact that power of the prayer and ceremony. So that was that was that was um, that was an education <laughs> to see that uh, how that was enacted in the group process in this big circle, thousand people, hundreds of people standing quietly for hours in the cold and then moving to the, to the water, standing by the water and the prayer leaders, people that had come, indigenous people from all over the world, leading a ceremony, speaking, relating to the water, calling on the spirits of the water and the land, engaging with them, calling on the ancestors, the great spirit of the earth. There was a, this, is a, a, this is a different cosmological view of it, of uh, being in the web of belonging. This isn't an objectified worldview. This is a worldview where everything's alive and sacred, and we are a part of that. So, in the training, which I found was very, very resonant with some of the the Buddhist alignment of the what's called the paramitas or spiritual powers and, and perfections. This was the. This is what I, I heard and understood. I don't want. I'm not. A, I'm not speaking as an authority. And what I wrote down from from the training, as a guideline from the the Sioux people, the Lakota and Dakota peoples, is that we are here first in prayer. This is a an act of prayerfulness, an act of prayerfulness that's connected with the purification of the heart, with the connection with the ancestors with the overall indwelling spirit of creation, aligning within community in ceremony. So this is the, was the first orientation. The second orientation, we are here in an attitude of respect. Respect begins with deferential listening. And from that, a willingness to shift into new ways internally and new ways of behavior externally. It means not pushing your ego agenda and strategies, but being willing to listen to wise elders to feedback for what is needed for the overall good of the community. The third one, compassion. We are here to take care of one another, to be compassionate towards ourselves and to others when making mistakes, to let the stronger support the weaker, let the weaker go first. To not assume entitlement, 
due to race, gender, class, wealth, but instead to tune into the needs of the marginalized and the vulnerable. The fourth one, honesty. Be true and authentic with each other while being self-honest about our conditioning and how that plays out, even subtly in ways that can generate harm to self and the environment. The fifth one, generosity. Put in more than you take out. Put in more than you take out. Generosity is not just sharing physical goods, but is essential to generating sustainable life for all. Sixth one, humility. Be grounded in your own being while checking your expectations of others and what's around you. Hold off again from pushing your agenda, particularly if it's dominating the space with I have a better way. My idea is best. Be sensitive to that and to your conditioning around that. And the seventh and last one, wisdom. We all carry wisdom within us. But in the context that we were there, to be respectful to the indigenous and elder wisdom. Listen and be guided by the understandings offered. And again, listen even to those you don't agree with. One of the elders said, at the, fa- at the campfire, there was a, the eternal fire that was going. And people would just come up and speak. Um, it, was, it was very beautiful and powerful to witness whatever was happening, what was ever on their mind. What should be remembered about Standing Rock is that it began with children calling us to pray with them. Elders too. We must mean and do what we say. Fighting from violence disrespects the ancestors. Don't forget that the ancestors are fighting the battle also, and they need us to be here without violence. You must pray for yourself to take out your pain and have love put in your hearts instead. We must unify with nature and she will heal us. Respect Mother Earth. And the person said, one day, At the height of the Iraq war, an elder grandmother prayed to the ancestors at the sacred fire to ask for the war to stop. The ancestors responded saying to her that your prayer is a good prayer, but it's not enough. Everyone must pray to stop the war. We are at a precipice. Everyone must pray. So we're praying. The praying is, is, is another way of talking about plunging ourselves in the unfathomable, mysterious, coursing the depths of the intuitive, living intelligence of the heart. Because that is our only hope, actually. <laughs> it's not going to be weapons. It's not that strategizing and engaging and all the other levels aren't important. They are, and we must do what we can. But in terms of the deeper shifts that really need to happen under the systemic conditionings that have brought us to this point, 
where we look around us and weep at the outcomes of our disconnect, you know, what is really called for us is this profound reclamation of our own heart. And it's waiting there, patiently, quietly, persistently, never gives up on us, has never given up on us. We've given up on it, calling us, healing us, loving us, speaking to us. And it's deeply connected with the web of life, with the intelligence, all those that are to be born, all those that are being born, all those that are living, aging, died, gone beyond death. It's all the ancestors, the peoples that walked this land, the peoples on this land now. We hold faith to all of that. Someone asked about faith. Faith is faith to all, to it all, to life. That we respect, that we love it. We love ourselves, that we are love. That we really never give up on that. That we trust that, that we be that. We allow that to heal us and to flow forth in ways that we can't even imagine where that might take us, what that might unfold for us. This is the leap of the Heart Sutra. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.